Jaxa Space and Astronautical Science Podcast. Welcome to the Jaxa Space and Astronautical Science Podcast. I'm your host Toshihisa Mikaido. Today we have a slightly different guest than usual. We have a former Jaxa postdoc who, upon completion of her contract, joined the European Space Agency (ESA). Planetary scientist Lucy Dew. We talk about some of the projects with which she is involved, including the Hayabusa 2 mission from JAXA and working in the clean room. We talk about analyzing data from ESA's Mars Express mission and the prospects of the ExoMars mission. We get into some of the differences between Japan and other countries in which she has lived and even talk a little bit about ballet, as well as plenty of other research-related topics. Without further ado... Let's get into it. Okay, our guest today, a former postdoc at JAXA, who is working as a aerospace research project associate in the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science in the Department of Solar System Sciences, Lucy Dew. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you. You finished your contract at JAXA maybe half a year or so ago. Um, a year ago, yeah. Almost. A year ago. It's been a year now, eh? You've done a lot of great things, you know, both at Jackson and uh, where you are now. With, we'll get into that later. But I'd just like to start by asking, what did you do at JAXA in your position? So at JAXA, I was uh, mostly involved in the Hayabusa 2 mission in one of the instruments that was on orbit and in one of the instruments that was on board mascot, the lander that landed on, on Ryugu three years and a half ago. And those two instruments are very similar. They are spectrometers that works in the near infrared. And basically, the, the aim of those instruments will be to characterize the mineralogy of the asteroid, if I, may, if I may say, and what is the asteroid made of. So one of them was working from orbit, so it's very rough resolution. We have a view of the global, um, global mineralogy of the asteroid. And from, for the other one, it was working in situ, so this time it's uh, same, same type of analysis, but we, we have information at the microscopic scale. So it, it's two different type of information. So I was involved in those two instruments and um, mostly doing data processing and data analysis to help and try to understand the history of the asteroid. So this was for most part of my postdoc. And uh, the last year I was very much involved with the curation facility because we installed the French instrument in the curation facility, the Micromega instrument, to analyze the samples that were brought back uh, by the Hayabusa mission. So before the samples were brought back, I was in charge of helping install the instrument and set it up, do some calibration tests and operational tests to make sure everything was going to work smoothly when the samples come back. And especially because of the pandemic, French engineer would have come to help, but no one was able to come. So, so we had to do everything remotely, which was pretty intense, but very nice. When the sample got back to work, uh, we started analyzing them. So yes, for the six last months, I spent a lot of time in the clean room to, with, the, with the colleagues from the curation facility to measure the samples with the Micromega instrument. And this time, again, same type of analysis that I was doing. So basically with all those different types of analysis from orbit, in situ, and then in the lab, we try to bring different pieces of the puzzle to understand the story of the asteroid. Thank you. Really interesting. We've had a few former guests talk about the Hayabusa 2 mission a little bit, just in case anybody's listening to this as their first episode, the Hayabusa 2 mission went into space and collected samples from an asteroid known as Bugu, and it brought back the largest sample ever taken from any astral body, with the exception of the moon, to space. We had a lot of great scientists, including uh, Lucy here, who were involved in that mission. So I guess there's a couple questions I have here. One is, can you explain exactly what the clean room is? You said you uh, spent a lot of time Uh, in that in the last six months. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a room uh, that is uh, 
<laughs> okay, it's a very clear room. This is, this is not what I'm. <laughs> this kind of thing you would be able to get out. So, <laughs> the clean room is a, is a space that JAXA worked at for long. So there are different types of clean room, but the one at JAXA is a room that was prepared to receive the sample from, from the asteroid. So there are lots of specifics that need to be respected because there might be two types of issue. We are bringing back samples from space, so we don't know what they are made of, and we want to be protected. And also for this kind of mission, uh, we uh, the big, big question about that can drive this kind of mission can be about the, the history of water in the solar system and even the history of life. So we might be looking for some... Uh, remnants of uh, life, for example. So we want to be sure that we do not contaminate the sample. Um, and those samples can be kept for many years because it's a very important mission. And today we're going to maybe store some of them and maybe open uh, some of the containers in like 10 years, 20 years when the technology is a lot better. So we have to make sure those samples are kept uh, in a room where they don't contaminate us and where we, are, we don't contaminate them. And it can be for a very long time. So to go into the room, we have to go through several steps of, of, uh, of rooms that get cleaner and cleaner. And when I say clean, it means that they recycle the air. And depending on the cleanliness of the rooms, they do it more often. And you are not able to bring anything within the room and you get dressed and you go uh, through a blowing machine that blows everything of you, I guess. Then in the first clean room and in the second clean room, and then you get to the super clean room. And when you are inside, you are fully dressed uh, a little bit like a cosmonaut, but with something very light. And you don't touch anything. You have gloves. And to go into the machine, you put an extra set of gloves and you cannot touch anything. And it's, it's, uh, it's very important. Um, impressive the first time you see it and when you walk inside it's uh, you don't see the daylight there are lots of noise uh, it's very intense to work in the clean room and because it takes about 20 minutes to get in you don't go out that often once you are there during the day it's like it could be uh, really stressful if you uh, if you got hungry or needed to uh, get out for whatever yeah. reason yeah Exactly. Or if you, yes, it's, yeah, you have to think beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, and, and you were working in there for how many hours a day would it, would it be regularly? It depends on what we were doing. I, I would say about eight. Eight hours a day in the, uh, in the clean room. I guess yes. yeah, it's impressive at first, but yes, once you're there, you also want to to make the most of your time. So yes, indeed, you might as well stay the entire day, and you go out to to eat, and you come back, and yeah, mostly it was four hours and four hours. You mentioned that you uh, worked with a lot of instruments, uh, both on uh, for the Hayabusa two that checked the asteroid and uh, also in the curation facility, uh, which would analyze the samples that were brought back. Um, what did you specifically do um, for your job with the instruments? Was it uh, the installation or operation or? Uh, so within, so for um, the instrument on Ayabusa 2 on the spacecraft, it's a Japanese instrument. I arrived way after the instrument was tested, built and everything because I arrived in JAXA in 2018. So this, I was just part of the processing and since it's the kind of instrument that is uh, broadly used in, in the exploration of planetary bodies. So if you already use this type of data set, you can very easily help with the calibration and data processing and data analysis. So this was part of my job. And for the micromega instrument within the creation facility, for this specific case, again, I, I guess it's mostly because of the pandemic, but I really help with the installation of the instrument within the creation facility. And then, uh, Today, I'm still uh, working with the team to do the data analysis and data processing. And uh, for this instrument, because I did half of my PhD on it, uh, I'm also in charge of the calibration of the data. 
you mentioned that you're still working with the with the teams on this. Yes. And so I guess that would bring us to asking now that you've you've left JAXA a year ago and you're the first person on this uh, podcast so far who is not currently working at JAXA. So I'd like uh, to know what kind of organizations do people go to after they leave JAXA? What, uh, where are you working now and uh, what kind of work are you doing now? Uh, so right now I'm a research fellow at ESA. So it's another postdoc at the European Space Agency. I'm still working on high, well, as a research fellow, you are very free of your time and you, um, you basically, when you apply to this kind of position, you tell them what you want to do and the big question you want to answer. And if you help within ESA mission and if you help bringing good science, they are very happy to have you. And once you get the position, you are very free to keep studying what you were studying before or try to collaborate with new people. So I still keep some of my time, uh, I would say maybe 20, 25% on Hayabusa 2. I'm not, I'm not physically in Japan, so I cannot go into the clean room, but we still, with some colleagues in France and some colleagues at JAXA, we still work together for the, um, for the processing and the data analysis and the operation. For example, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. my time, and so it's going to be, what, 2 p.m. Japan time, I will be connecting with the clean room in Japan to follow the operation of the instrument and to see if everything goes well, because it's been a year and a half, but we're still uh, measuring uh, grains from Ryugu almost every day, so we have to make sure everything is going smoothly. And uh, most of my time I'm working on Mars um, and I'm working for the Mars Express mission and ExoMars mission. And I'm um, trying to uh, contribute to the big answer, to the big question about the water on Mars. Um, where it went, is it still there? Uh, did it contribute to uh, habitable environment on Mars, this kind of question. So I'm doing uh, spectroscopy and mineralogy on Mars. That's very impressive. There's there's a lot of things uh, I think we need to unpack there. So after finishing your time at the Japanese Space Agency, you went to the European Space Agency. So these, these are two of the largest space agencies in the entire world, which is uh, an amazing accomplishment. It sounds like you're keeping in touch with uh, a lot of your colleagues uh, that you worked with back uh, at JAXA. Is this something you commonly do as a researcher? You want to sort of, I guess, keep in touch with a lot of uh, people, do a lot of collaborating globally? Or? Um, I think it's very important, but also the world seems kind of big. But when we do something as niche as looking at, at, at works, works coming from Mars or an asteroid, I think not that many people do that. So ultimately, you will work with the same people. And I see working at JAXA, I started collaborating, collaborating also, for example, with people in the US on Hayabusa 2. And then it's the same people that work on Mars in the US. So even when I switch to Mars, I ultimately end up with the same people because so it's very fun. It's a, it's a very small word, I think. And if you don't, I think you cannot do this by yourself. So it's very important to to keep collaboration and to foster a new one, of course. I was very lucky because I did my, I'm also collaborating a lot with my former colleague in France, uh, where I did my PhD. And they are strongly involved in Hayabusa 2 and in ExoMars. So even after almost, it's been eight years since I started my PhD, um, I still work with them a lot. and. It, not only because I enjoy working with them, but because it makes sense for the question and science I'm doing. And I feel very fortunate to be able to still work with those people. I guess it's uh, good to try and stay on good terms with everybody, keep uh, good relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Since you're working, you're currently in France and uh, you're collaborating with people in Japan and maybe sometimes America. And yeah. as you said, even, uh, I guess, tomorrow you'll have kind of uh, um, meetings and uh, at some odd hours, it sounds like. <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> is that uh, stressful at all? Having, uh, you know, maybe today you'll have to wake up at, uh, you know, four or 5 a.m. And then the next day you'll have something 
I don't know, 10 p.m. I, I'm not sure what times you have, but mm, I think so. And you said I'm in France. I mean, I'm in Spain actually. Oh, you're in Spain I'm, right I'm, now. I'm, oh. I'm set up in Madrid. There is one. There is so I will answer your question, but <laughs> just so you have the information. Uh, for postdoc at ESA, the, the research fellow, we can be either in Nordvik at ESTEC or in Madrid at ESAC, which is where I am, which is an operational center, or you can be in Baltimore because there is a, a, a small branch of uh, ESAC, uh, ESA people in Baltimore. And I decided to, to go to Madrid when I applied. But it's very close to France. It's the same time zone and I, I go there a lot. So stressful to work at odd times sometimes. It's not and being back in Europe it's a lot easier because you are in the middle time zone when I was in Japan it was very intense because if you work with Europe it's always very late at night and if you work with the US can be early in the morning and yeah in Japan it was more stressful now in Europe I think we are in the right time zone to work with everyone I see Mostly. that's good yeah you mentioned that uh, at ESA you're currently working on I guess a couple Mars missions mostly focusing on finding and uh, studying water on Mars. Can you I explain more about these uh, specific missions, what you're hoping to find uh, with them yes. and, and what you are doing on them? As long as you're allowed to say those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, so the Mars Express mission is uh, starting to be, a, if I may say, an old mission. It... it uh, it took off in 2004, and it has been around Mars for many years now. Uh, it, it's still uh, operating and, and doing a lot of science, but me, for this mission, I'm mostly working on, on data that was acquired up until 2014, maybe. So it's uh, we, we find new ways to process the data and extract information because we have better tools today than we had uh, 10 years ago. But uh, so I'm working with the Omega instrument, uh, which is a hyperspectral imager that works in the near infrared. Uh, so basically, we take images of the surface of Mars, and at each pixel of the image, we will have access to a um, near infrared spectrum. And with the spectrum, we are able to identify the different type of minerals that that are present at the surface of Mars. And when you go deeper into this kind of analysis, you find models, for example, to not only detect the minerals, but to be able to quantify which mineral is found in which quantity. And I've been studying a lot of the minerals that we call hydrated minerals, which basically mean uh, that they, they formed with the presence of liquid water at some point. Um, so if we find minerals that forms under liquid water and the liquid water have to be present for a long amount of time, million years, for example, these kind of things, uh, we can try to understand the implication for the history of water at Mars. And so this is something, this instrument works from orbit. So this is something we do from a global point of view. Again, that has lots of pros to, to do this because we have a full view of the Martian surface and we can, we can have hypotheses to try to understand the different phase, but we don't have a very good resolution. So one pixel is a little bit uh, below one kilometer. So imagine on Earth, if you take a picture from, from space of one kilometer per one kilometer, you have a lot of things. Um, so one pixel yeah Probably. wow <laughs> so it's 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 rough but we still are able to to have a lot of information hmm. and i'm also involved um in the exomas mission so within isa i will be able i i i didn't start yet but i will be able to collaborate with people working so the exomas mission there is um an orbiter right now a spacecraft around mars it's been there since 2016, and there are plenty of very good instruments. I don't work with them yet. I hope to do so because they do a lot of atmospheric science, for example, which can also help understand uh, the cycle of water at Mars. So it's two different types of science. So me, I'm doing geology and mineralogy, and atmospheric science is very different, but I, I really think we can try to merge those two to extract more information. So I hope to do that within my, my postdoc. 
And I mostly involved into the rover of ExoMars. So there will be a, a rover that is going to be launched this summer to go to go to Mars. And within these rovers, there we can also find the micro mega instrument, the same one that is within the creation facility. Well, um, second model, but the same instrument. And I'm involved in that uh, with my French colleague to prepare the investigation and when it will be there, um, hopefully to work for the yeah, investigation once it's there and try to analyze uh, those samples from the surface of Mars. It's going to be neat. That sounds uh, very exciting. There's so many things that we might be able to find out from uh, that information. And I guess you'll be one of the first people to know uh, what comes back. So you mentioned that your current position as a uh, research fellow, uh, you have, I, I guess, quite a bit of freedom to decide uh, how you spend your time on what, uh, what projects. Can you sort of explain how you organize your day? If you have sort of a schedule that is either set or you sort of <laughs> go through, uh, you decide for yourself maybe, or maybe it's different every day. I don't know. I, so I try different things and most, so I tried to do it day by day, depending on what task I have to do, or I tried to, to tell myself, oh, if I want to work, uh, say 20% on, on, on Hayabusa 2, well, then this day will be for Hayabusa 2 and it's my 20%. And, but I, I don't think this, is, this, is, this can be doable actually, because sometimes you have meetings. So I find that mostly my days are built around meetings. And then depending on the topic of the meetings, I guess I will stick to the, to the same topic during the day or at least half a day. And if I, at midday I want to change or I don't have a meeting, then I can decide what I do. Uh, but yeah, I will juggle with the different things I have to do. And it's been working. I was doing a little bit the same at Jackson. It was working. I, I, I don't find that setting one day for one topic, uh, I don't find this efficient. Try it again. But... Is it difficult for you to uh, change your, your focus in the middle of the day? If you're say you're doing something on Hayabusa 2, then suddenly you'll have a, a uh, Mars mission meeting and then maybe you have to go right back into Hayabusa 2, something like that. I'm not sure it will be that often that I will go back and forth. Uh, probably if, for example, um, tomorrow morning I have operation with Hayabusa 2 and then we have a Hayabusa 2 meeting, either I will stick to that all day or at midday I'll stop. <laughs> no more Hayabusa 2 and I will do Mars <laughs> the rest of the day, for example. I see. And that, that works out pretty well, I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure if you put together the, any projects yourself or if you decide to join existing ones normally. But let's say you have a project or a research paper that you're trying to write. How do you decide either what you would like that uh, the research topic to be or if you have a choice of existing ones? Uh, which one you want to take part in and what would be the important points of how you determine those things? Okay, so if I'm the one leading a paper, I believe at some point when, you, when you're researching on something, you know that it would make sense to try to have it published because you found something new or you found something interesting. And of course, you can be biased when you say it's new. And, well, new, if you do a good job at... Uh, Bibliography, normally, you know if it's new or not. But uh, interesting, you might be biased sometime. But um, I think me, I, I rarely question whether it should be published at some point within my research. Well, right now, we are trying to, work, to write a paper on something new and interesting. <laughs> but, uh, um, and it makes sense. You reach a point where you have all this new information and you could keep it and wait and go father and but it's i think really i believe you you know when it makes sense to publish something when it's your and you work on it and you have new results and this is how we go forward with science i think it's very important well we should not publish everything and uh we should try to stick to to very specific and interesting topics but i think me, I, I can say it, at some point, you know, it makes sense to, to try to publish what you have. And when it's, um, for example, for 
collaboration when I have colleagues working on paper and I'm within the paper, then if someone else is leading, um, of course, if you are part of the paper, you, you, you agree with the fact that uh, it's important to have it published. And then depending on, on your time and your expertise, you, you scale how to contribute to this paper. If it's not yours, you have to find a way to contribute, but. You were at JAXA and then went to ESA. So as we already mentioned, this is pretty amazing. I kind of want to know how you got to, to where you are, the steps that you've taken over your career history and, and maybe before that even, uh, if you don't mind, uh, maybe going to where you were born and raised, uh, where you went to school, uh, anything you want to mention in that point and how you, uh, until you got to JAXA. Anyway. Yeah, sure. I'm from France. Uh, I was born in the suburbs of Paris and I grew up in the suburbs of Paris my entire life. I was there. I would say I had a pretty regular childhood and, and teenagehood. Um, school was not my favorite thing back then and uh, I had no particular interest for space back then. No, I because I know I met lots of colleagues that wanted to to do astrophysics since they were very little and that were they were always interesting by stars and planets and stuff I, I was absolutely not like that but it was not only this I was really not interesting by school period I think uh, I, still to this day I believe that school is not made for everyone and because it's a very I don't know it's very formal and you don't have a lot of options to explore uh, different paths you are very stuck within one path when you are in, in middle school and high school. Uh, but I went through it and uh, I went to the university, one of the university of Paris. I entered the university because I wanted to be a teacher. And at that time in France, you had to have any kind of bachelor in order to try to have the exam to be a teacher. So you could go through any kind of bachelor and then uh, try to, to pass the teaching exam, basically. And I went in uh, physics for completely random, random reasons. And I was not that. I went, I went for physics and chemistry because they worked together in France uh, in high school. I don't know. I think in many, many countries it's the same. Um, so first years of university and I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not bad. It makes sense. It's okay. I don't feel like chemistry, but okay. Uh, and then I stopped doing chemistry and stick to physics. And I told myself, okay, I'm not going to be a teacher for a young kid, but I might be a physics teacher for a high school or something like that, because I was actually enjoying physics. And in my third year of bachelor, you have to, I had to do an internship. I was, it's, it's very complicated when you are like 20 years old and you're supposed to go talk to people in, in institute and laboratories to try to find an internship when you know you're not going to be very much useful. You're going to be mostly a pain because it takes a lot of time to, to um, have an intern that is very young and doesn't know a lot of things. So I was very shy and I, and I, and I, I, I struggled to find, find an internship. and. I was very lucky because I had someone within my family that knew someone who was working in an institute in Paris and they were like, okay, maybe meet this person. It's going to be easy. Uh, maybe it will not take you, but maybe it will take you. Just go meet him. And uh, this person is, um, it's the engineer that built the Micromega instrument. So I met this person uh, more than 10 years ago and did an internship within in the lab in France where I did my PhD. But so this person is an engineer. He was not doing research or anything. So my, my internship at that time was more engineering. But I met a lot of colleagues that I still know today. And it's funny because I, I was amazed by any time we had coffee and they were talking about space and they were talking about NASA, about JAXA, about ESA, and about so many things that seems, I don't know, for, for regular in a regular life, and like not today, it seems normal to speak about these things. But I remember at the time, I was like, wow. <laughs> so people work for NASA, and regular people work for these kind of things. But I enjoyed a lot this time, but I was very afraid about space 
for philosophical reason, I believe. You know, space is infinite and it's growing. This kind of, of question that I, I still today find a bit, a bit frightening. So I was like, okay, it's very interesting, but I'm not going to do space science because it's too much. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. And uh, yeah, I studied my master's and actually I went, uh, I went back to astrophysics. I was like, I, I enjoy it and let's just try it. So I did my two years of master's uh, specializing in astrophysics. And uh, at the end of my master's, I went back to this lab and I started to discuss with uh, some colleagues whether they had opportunities for PhDs. And they had, well, they agreed to try to, to, to build a PhD research proposal with me. And then I had to go through a selection process that is nationwide uh, to get it. And I got it. And so I did my PhD at IS in, in Orsay, which is in the suburbs of Paris, in the Institut d'Astrophysique Spatiale. And um, for my PhD, I work on Mars for most of it. And I also work on the Micromega instrument for Hayabusa 2. I finished my PhD in 2017 and Hayabusa 2 was almost uh, arriving. And I was happy to, to work with this mission, although very scared about the likelihood of going to Japan. But um, my French colleagues, I would say, insisted a bit. And they were like, yeah, it's, it would be very nice to have one of us in Japan to work on those topics. And it makes sense. It made sense. I, I agreed with them that I was. I, I wanted to go away for a postdoc. I was not afraid to, to go abroad. I was actually looking forward going abroad, but I didn't have Japan in mind at all, to be honest. I had never been in Japan before. I don't know. I, I didn't picture myself going in Japan. I picture myself going, going in the US or going somewhere in Europe or I don't know, something that seems more classical. I don't know. And we went to Japan a couple of times um, on business trips after my PhD. So yeah, we went a couple of times and I was like, okay, I, I will apply to JAXA. I will do it because uh, scientifically it makes a lot of sense. Um, and we will see, just let's do it and we'll see if it happens or not. And actually I applied to JAXA and I went uh, in Japan to do my interview. And I received the answer on the day of Christmas, I remember, uh, that I got the position. And when I saw the email, it was very clear in my head that I was going to take it. And no fear anymore and no nothing. And it was very funny because you don't... I was not afraid because I told myself, worst case, really, if, if you don't feel good in Japan for whatever reason, because it's too far away, before, because it's too different, because it's too complicated or... You, you can go somewhere else. You're not in prison. You, you can change your mind. It's okay. And I went to Japan a few months after that and the best decision ever. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I, I loved it so much. It's, yeah. That's definitely an interesting uh, experience, the everything that you, <laughs> you went through. And I think that's really good advice as, as well with, you know, the career choice, even though you, you might be a little bit afraid or uh, worried about how things will be in the future. It's, uh, you know, most choices uh, we'll make in life, you know, uh, are probably reversible in the worst case scenario. Yes. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's something everybody can really think about, you know, it, whether it's a career or whatever, there's usually the option to go back so as long as you have that in mind before you make a choice there's probably a lot less fear in making those choices yes, i think this is very important to keep in mind and sometimes it doesn't work out and you change your mind and sometimes it does work out i would not have expected that i would love japan that much so it worked out even better than expected yeah yeah 100 uh, percent <laughs> that's great great <laughs> One thing I want to ask related to everything you just said is you mentioned that you wanted to be a teacher initially. Do you still want to become a teacher at some point? <laughs> it's something I keep in mind. 
Well, the thing is, I love to teach. This is uh, something I think I always enjoyed and I really, I really love it. Uh, when I think about teaching, I don't think really about university. I, I think about younger kids because I think that what I enjoy with teaching is also education a bit. And I believe you have a bigger, let's say, impact on, on, on younger ones in terms of education and things like that. And at the university, you're really there to, to teach them about physics, for example. And I, me, I enjoy a little bit more everything that comes with teaching. So if I make this choice, it would mean that I probably will stop doing research. So I'm not there yet. Uh, but the, the research career is very complicated, as everyone knows, to get a permit. So having a postdoc is... I'm, it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying uh, so far I didn't struggle that much. And I think if you find a good opportunity and there are plenty of opportunity for postdocs, so I think this is something that I can keep on doing. Permanent position is something that is a lot more complicated. And it implies also, I think, some sacrifice in life. Uh, again, you have to choose wherever, which choice you want to make in your life. And uh, so... I keep, I keep teaching in mind uh, at some point if I'm fed up with the system uh, in research and I don't want to, to put up with it anymore. So far, I'm, 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 I feel very fortunate because I was able to go three years and a half in Japan. I am probably going to stay three years in Spain. And if I want to, I might try to go somewhere else after that. So I think this is an awesome life right now. Maybe in two years, I will be tired and I will not want to do this anymore. Or maybe I would have applied to permanent position and got rejected a few times and I will have lost face. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. So this is something I keep in mind because I know I, I enjoy teaching and uh, it might happen at some point. You weren't really satisfied with the uh, way schools were when you were younger, I guess uh, middle yeah. school, uh, elementary or high school, I, I don't know, <laughs> somewhere around there. So whether or not you ultimately decide to become a teacher, I would kind of like to know if you have, and I don't know if you've thought about this before or not, but how would you design sort of an education system differently from how it currently exists if you, if there I is? I never thought about that. And it's very funny because you just asking me a question and I'm like, yeah, I didn't like school and I want to teach in school, which is, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's, it's a very good question. I uh, I actually never thought about it. Still today, sometimes I look if there are like new ways in, uh, I don't know if pedagogy is also an English word, but in, in ways uh, to teach, I try to see uh, if there are research or books or things about different strategies in teaching. So I'm, I'm always trying to learn about it. But I, I never thought about how I might try to to have, uh, not, not, let's not say alternative, because if you are teaching, for example, in France, it's very formal because while well, you have rules to respect and everything, but I, I never think, I never thought that it's, I'm gonna try thinking about it. <laughs> but I, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to, to keep track a little bit about different things that works and don't work. Right, well, I'm sure you still have plenty of time to think about yes. that one. So. So. No rush, but uh, definitely something. Yeah, I mean, you're sort of building up that knowledge base as as you uh, you know continue to learn about you know everything that you're you're currently doing and uh, t teaching techniques as well. Yes. I think uh, you know if the time does come, you'll probably make an excellent teacher. I'm sure. <laughs> so, you've lived in uh, quite a few different uh, countries and I guess experienced several different uh, cultures with uh, France, Spain, Japan, and yes. <laughs> wherever else. I studied in the U.S. for you. Oh, I studied in the U.S., yes. So the language, the culture, the, the food, uh, so many things are, are different there. Is, is there anything specifically either a culture shock or something, you know, about any of these countries that's notable that you specifically liked or anything like that? Um, I, I love Japanese food yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot. I was not, ex well, so the thing is, it's, it's me, uh, it's not very well known, but in, in France and in lots, lots of countries, when we speak about Japanese food, we speak about sushis. 
And this is just such a tiny bit of Japanese food. This is, it's so sad. We, we just don't know about the rest of, of the Japanese food. Um, I love it. And this was, this was a very nice discovery when I got in Japan. Uh, before also before coming in Japan, I was not eating meat, and once in Japan, it was very complicated to avoid uh, meat because it's everywhere. Uh, that's that was the, the only I was not expecting uh, that meat would be everywhere. But anyway, the Japanese food is amazing, and it's I guess very healthy. I've 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 met a lot of friends that moved to Japan and 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 lost quite some weight, including me. I did lots of that in Japan. Yeah, I would say that the, the, every time we discuss with friends that were about or that were leaving Japan about what we would miss the most and the food uh, mostly come first every time. I was amazed, although I was expecting it, but amazed about the cleanliness of Tokyo and everywhere I've traveled in Japan and the safety also because uh, we, it's a place where we feel very safe. And you get used to it. Uh, and then when you fly back to Europe, you, 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 you stay very close to all your belongings and things. It's very funny. But, um, and Europe is not dangerous, but I don't know. It's a shift in the state of mind. In Japan, it was very nice to, to be less aware about the fact that we might get something stolen <laughs> because yeah. nothing was happening. I think sometimes I was, again, I was prepared, but uh, I was confused about the... Um, the way we work in Japan and the way we do not take holidays and we I think yeah. this is something that is a bit weird that we might need a, <laughs> a full episode just to talk about the work-life uh, culture <laughs> in Japan <laughs> uh, but you know actually I think well for example I was very fortunate because um, within the creation facility we worked a lot mm -hmm. and uh Sometimes it was because of France, because France was putting a lot of pressure on us to do a lot of measurements and a lot of operation. And we had uh, the boss in Japan telling France that we needed a nice work-life balance and we needed to spend less time in the creation. And I, I was very happily surprised that a Japanese boss would tell uh, a French colleague that we needed to work less in Japan because it was too much and especially because of the relationship uh, that is in Japan with, with work. So I think, I think uh, some people are getting there and know that uh, we need to think of, of ourselves also and try to, to uh, be cautious about how we work and how we rest. Yes, definitely. Uh, <laughs> And I don't know, landing in Spain after Japan, it's, I was a bit afraid <laughs> because I, I, I spent a couple of months in Paris between Japan and Spain. Uh, so I, I, I love Paris, but it's, uh, it's a lot messier and nosier and everything uh, worse than in Tokyo. And, and going to Spain, I was like, oh, it's even more south. It's going to be worse. People are going to be even louder. And the subway is going to be worse. And everything is going to be terrible. And in Madrid, everything is very nice. It's very, very nice. The city is very clean. Uh, it's very safe. Same, I was expecting. I don't know why it's misbelief, but I was expecting something less safe than Paris. It's very, very safe. It's very clean. The food is not amazing <laughs> but it's good no it's good it's good they have good food yeah i don't know i really i really enjoy madrid it's, it's very different from from tokyo and i miss tokyo a lot but uh i, I really enjoy spain great that you know most things are better than expected over there in spain so, <laughs> so when you were talking about uh when you had applied for jaxa it didn't sound like you were overly uh, stoked to actually apply for Jackson in the first place. Uh, it was sort of just, uh, sort of just happened. But after you left uh, Jackson or around that time, did you have any uh, specific reason for applying to ESA? Was it to sort of to continue um, your work? I, I like the fact that for this kind of position at ESA, we are very free. So this is something that uh, I liked. I, because of the pandemic, I wanted to come back to Europe. Uh, this is why I was looking for for position in, in Europe. No 
particular interest to go back to France yet. So I was not looking for France. And this one came up quite early because I applied maybe eight months. I applied in during the summer and I was finishing my my postdoc in June. So I applied almost 10 months, yes, before the end of my postdoc. So it, it arrived quite early. And it's the first one I applied to, and it's the only one, and I got it. So I didn't question myself a lot on whether um, I wanted to apply to institute or I was discussing with a, with a collaborator in the States to go to, to one of, of uh, uh, States Institute where I'm, uh, which room I'm collaborating. Because of COVID, I was a lot more happy about, not happy, but I, I felt more comfortable about coming back to Europe. And yes, Isa seemed, after JAXA, I, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't feel like going to, to an institution, a university again. I think I'm, I'm, I might do it, um, but I like the, the possibility to see how another space agency works because I, I, I've seen something in Japan and I was, I was interested to see what would it be in Europe. And the positions are, are very, for me, I think it's a very great position as a postdoc. You have a lot of freedom. And yes, I think it's very nice. I, I want to ask here, do you have any sort of notable hobbies or, or things that you really like to do? Uh, maybe besides uh, eating Japanese food um, <laughs> when you're not in the lab? Or even uh, if you, maybe you do it in the lab, I don't know. No. <laughs> uh, some hobbies. Uh, I'm a, I'm a very social person, so I, I tend to spend a lot of time with, with other human beings and friends. <laughs> um, but uh, otherwise, I again, it's because of the pandemic, but I, I keep doing it now. I studied yoga. Uh, I think especially with teleworking, when you don't move during the entire day, I really try to move uh, a lot more than I used to. So just even... Uh, walking or uh, no running yet but maybe one day and yes I so I do yoga in Japan I was also doing ballet dancing uh, because there was there were a lot of schools in Tokyo and uh, here in Spain uh, they are very um, uh, they are big fans of paddle which is a kind of tennis Kind of, if, if people who know paddles hear me say it's kind of like tennis, maybe they will disagree. But for those who don't know, it's a bit like, it's between tennis and squash. And uh, I, I started doing that because it's it's outside and the weather here in Madrid is absolutely wonderful. So it's nice to, to, to play a little bit outside. Great that you're active. We had uh, Yuki Hyodo on the previous episode. He was also telling us that he really likes to play uh, um, uh, football. So yeah, doing, you know, yoga and, and and ballet and things between tennis and squash that's <laughs> a, a lot of activity so um I, I yeah it's it's definitely great and it's it's always good to hear that because uh, i i do think that there's a bit of a sort of a stereotype out there where you know scientists are not very active is uh, i've heard this anyway i don't know maybe it's just people around yes. me who say this but uh and do yeah. only science. And I do only that. science, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, is there ballet specifically? I, I haven't met very many people who have been doing ballet. Is there a reason that you took that up? Uh, I was I, I was doing uh, ballet when I was a kid and a teenager, and I stopped maybe when I, I don't know, 18 or something like that. For a long time, I stopped. And I told myself, it's been years that I was like, oh, I'll start ballet again someday, someday, someday. And then, you know, times fly and you just don't do it for whatever reason. And um, in Tokyo, I, I met a friend who was doing it in a school. And she was like, well, come with me. <laughs> okay, I will come with you. And uh, it's funny because I always told myself that if I had a very completely different job and if I had a different life, I would be a, a, baller, a ballerina. I don't know if you said that in English, yeah, but yeah. I would be a ballerina. I might not have made it, of course, because it's super complicated and you have to be to be one of the best, which I, I was not. But in my in my dreamer's head, sometimes I'm like, okay, if I was not doing what I'm doing, I would be doing, I would be dancing. So I was happy to start again. Yeah, so both yoga and ballet, I guess, uh, 
I think flexibility is definitely one of the areas of health that a lot of people seem to neglect. So yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's something we should all work on. Uh, me too. I need to get a bit more <laughs> flexible. <laughs> so I guess back to the uh, the sort of science area here. Um, there's probably I I assume there's a lot of people listening anyway who are either students um, maybe getting into a similar field or are at least interested in somehow participating in, uh, in let's say planetary science, uh, for example, would you sort of have any tools or resources or any kind of thing that you can recommend to people who are interested in your field, but might not necessarily have access to, you know, organizations lab or somewhere to have all the, all the equipment already laid out for them? So I think there are several things. It's, um, well, maybe it's already a bit technical, but I will start with this one. uh, I didn't heard about this before, Isa, and I know lots of people know about this, but anyways, uh, I was not aware. There are sometimes a lot of projects that are based on citizens that want to help, basically. So you can find... uh, surveys when they ask you to look for something specific in a in a map of the sky for example and it's based on yeah free times of cities so i don't think you have to know a lot i think you just have to be me i never did this kind of things nor organizing the project nor participating as a citizen to one of those projects but i think this can be very interesting because yeah it's you do it on your time, you find the subject that you like and you help the community, um, the, science, the scientific community. So I think this is very good. I don't have uh, names in mind, but I've heard of, here for exoplanets, uh, solar uh, science, astronomy, I've, in ESA, there are plenty of people working with this kind of thing. And I think it's a very nice way to put regular people to contribution if they are interesting. It's not only to have like free workforce, not, absolutely not. It's really, I think, to also keep some attractiveness to what we do, I believe, for for uh, other people. And otherwise, otherwise for students and young ones, well, there are lots of books that are very interesting. I, I love books, so maybe I'm biased, but there are lots of books that are very interesting if you want to learn, if you want to work, yeah, I think uh, it has to go through to through your studies at some point and try to to find the path that will lead you either to engineering or to research because you don't have to do space science to be uh, an engineer in space science, uh, for example. But I, I I think it will come to studies. Do you have uh, any uh, specific recommendations for books? Absolutely. Absolutely not. And I have read some that I don't. And also uh, me, sometimes I tend to to read the books from the people I know and mostly they will be in French. But uh, because if I want to read something very specific, I will go through a scientific paper in English. But nice. otherwise for, for books, I will mostly read French ones when it comes to this. Because it's people I know. <laughs> okay. Um, do you have a title of even one of those books in French? Maybe we have some uh, some people who know French would like to, to read any book that you can recommend. <laughs> Actually, I don't have one in mind. No, I'm sorry, I don't have one in mind. Okay, okay, no problem. About these, the uh, I guess the citizen projects, uh, yes. I'm not sure exactly what, uh, you know, whoever is listening will be focused on, but I, I guess um, they would work on some project sort of stipulated by an existing organization like uh, ESA yes. or whatever, and they would maybe provide uh, old data for citizens to look through. And Yes, these kind of things. Or it could be also new data sometimes. It oh. really depends. Besides contribution, which in itself is definitely a worthy cause, is there something citizen scientists uh, would be able to get out of that? Let's say... For example, where they were going through images of the Mars Express, for example. I don't know if those are public or not. And uh, let's say somebody found, oh, there's a there's a river here. It's still there. 
And I don't know, it's just something uh, way out there. And they, they told Lisa, hey, I found this. Would they receive any kind of recognition, credit, uh, financial reward? I, I don't know, anything at all? Or is it more just uh, uh, the contribution that they've made as a whole? So I do not know specifically. From the top of my mind, I would say I hope so, <laughs> but probably not. Okay. But, I, I, but this is uh, totally coming from me. I'm mm -hmm. not working with this kind of project, but uh, from what I understood, uh, I believe that uh, probably not, but I hope so. If you find something uh, like a breaking, uh, I don't know, something very interesting that no one has found before, I think you should get recognition, even if you are not uh, say an investigator working on it, but if you have a citizen that was just helping, you should also be recognized for it. Okay, I was I was just wondering, uh, sort of on behalf of anybody who might be wondering that. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of a way out there question. Maybe I don't know what everyone's going to find. Yeah, that's uh, that's I guess an interesting uh, possibility for for people to look into being able to have the opportunity to contribute to uh, one of these yes. uh, great projects and maybe get recognition. We're not sure, but. <laughs> So I guess for another kind of uh, way out there question that I like to ask the guests, let's say that you suddenly had a near unlimited budget and you could put this toward anything. It could be your current research. It could be a brand new project. You get to decide what would you like to work on or, or build or fund or anything like that. I don't know if it's funny because it just come up, but I don't know if money will help, but I will try to work at protecting uh, so I work for planetary bodies and I would like to work at protecting them because we know that space is becoming private. Uh, there are people with a lot of money that are going to be able soon to go to the moon, uh, soon to go to Mars. And the laws and regulation are not very clear for this kind of person. And I don't know, I would love to build, some, to not build as something physical, but to work towards a way uh, to prevent well, for example, to prevent people from building, let's, I'm exaggerating, but houses on Mars, for example. We're never going to build houses on Mars, but I think doing research to try to understand the world and where we are going and where we're coming from, it's, of course, I love this idea, but I think that doing space exploration as a means to show that you are the strongest uh, man um, on this planet is something very different and it's it's absolutely not uh, protected and me i i i, have, I fear uh, the future of space exploration because of that and i think there should be ways to to protect and uh, yeah i think we should uh, we should try to i think we should go slower and try to stop those kind of person and I believe uh, so. It's not scientifically related. It's not science related. My question, but I, I would like if I had a limited budget, try to yeah, prevent the fact that space is becoming private, <laughs> and that they're going to be able to do whatever they want. Uh, Antarctica might be kind of like this, where yes. technically nobody owns the the land or the anything there except exactly. for maybe what you bring personally. So that that sort of planetary protection yes it's definitely going to be a wild ride going forward seeing uh both legally and scientifically and there's definitely going to be a lot of things going on in the near future yeah so protecting planets it's uh, yes i would like to protect planets and also the science because if we go there and do whatever it's i think we we might uh i don't know alter whatever we're looking for scientist. So be a lot more careful with the, the research conducted as well. Then. Yes. And okay. not try to colonize uh, any kind of planetary bodies. So I'd like to just uh, sort of end by asking you if you had any kind of interesting fact, theory, suggestion, or piece of information <laughs> that you'd like the audience to sort of consider after they finish listening to this uh, podcast, having their minds for the rest of the day, Maybe tell a friend <laughs> anything interesting that you'd like to leave us with. It's something I believe most people know, but I still, uh, even if it's a, a wide part of my, my job to think about this topic, I 
I think it's still kind of amazing that we always talk about extraterrestrial life or extraterrestrial whatever could be outside. But we don't know whether we are coming from outside of Earth. And I think, yeah, I, I, I like to think about the fact that maybe we are not Earthian and we are also extraterrestrial uh, bodies because we probably have been brought here. Well, we don't actually, we don't know if we have been brought here or if there are uh, life on Mars, maybe it's from the same source as us. So yeah, we don't know. Maybe we are Martian or maybe we are not Earthian. I don't know. I think this is very, I, I like the fact to think that we we don't know where we're coming from and maybe we're not coming from here. And I think this is very interesting. I guess and I a, hope we will know someday. Oh, yes. yes. There's, uh, I guess, a lot of theories and hypotheses uh, in regards to the origin of human life. So I guess what you're saying is we could, at least in some sense, be uh, aliens or Martians or something ourselves. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. In some sense. In some sense, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, Depending on the, how we define this kind of thing. Yeah, that is, uh, is something interesting to, to think about where, you know, it's something that we might get hints towards uh, based on your work on Hayabusa 2, even the origin yeah, of life. Hopefully we get a little bit closer to that answer. And that's something we should all think about. Where did we actually come from? Are we aliens ourselves? These are yeah. interesting points. Thank you for that, that interesting note to end this episode. And thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We will have you on in a future episode again, too. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you.